In this class, we're going to talk about fistula management, which is a major challenge for wound nurses and ostomy nurses. We include this in both the skin and wound care course and the ostomy care course because whichever specialty you're focusing on, you will be managing patients with fistulas. We will describe the pathology of fistulas that occur postoperatively and those caused by inflammatory bowel conditions. We'll describe the diagnostic workup for a patient with a fistula. We're going to discuss medical management for the patient with a fistula and indications for surgical intervention. We'll discuss assessment guidelines to include the significance of stomatization and of low volume versus high volume output. And then when you come to Bridge Week, you're gonna focus on techniques for fistula management, pouching, trough procedure, bridging, and closed suction. So we'll describe those briefly, but you'll actually practice them and do them in Bridge Week. And we'll explain the indications and guidelines for management of a fistula with absorptive products. So we're going through all the content in the video. You will have some learning exercises and there is a chapter in the core curriculum on both wound management and ostomy care. And wound management is chapter 34. So what is a fistula? Well, you know what it is. It's a hole that should not be there. It's an abnormal communication between two internal organs or between an internal organ and the skin. Most commonly, fistulas involve the intestinal tract, so you can have communication between the bowel and the bladder, between the bowel and the vagina, or between the bowel and the skin. Most commonly, it's bowel to skin, and that's gonna be the primary focus of this discussion. What causes them to occur? Well, in 90% plus of cases, surgery is the precipitating factor, and that makes sense. So as this slide illustrates, when you think about how many patients go to surgery every day for bowel resection, small bowel resection, colon resection. So we take out the area of pathology, we do an end-to-end -end anastomosis, and normally it heals without incident. That's our expectation. Typically the bowel heals quickly because it's well perfused. But if anything interferes with the healing process, you could get one little area that fails to heal normally. Essentially, one little area of anastomotic dehiscence, and then you've got a hole in the bowel, leaking fluid. That fluid is going to follow the path of least resistance, which in a post-operative patient is gonna be the incisional line and it's going to dump into the wound bed or onto the abdominal wall. So it's a failure of normal healing in a patient who's had intestinal resection. Essentially the very same pathology that results in incisional dehiscence can result in anastomotic breakdown. So what about the patient who's malnourished? It's gonna be com more common in that patient population it's gonna be more common in situations where there's infection, abscess formation, major peritoneal contamination, which we know that major peritoneal contamination will delay the proliferative phase, will delay collagen synthesis. <clears throat> it could be compromised perfusion. What if you throw a little bitty clot to a very small mesenteric artery? 
and it causes very localized ischemia. That would be enough to cause one little area of anastomotic breakdown. And finally, think about how many of our patients develop postoperative ileus. They have major abdominal distension. And if you could look internally, you would see that the bowel is also very distended. So if you have a very distended bowel and you have a suture line involving that area of distended bowel, you can see that that added tension could put stress on the anastomotic line and could result in anastomotic breakdown. So the vast majority of your patients who have a fistula between the bowel and the abdominal wall will develop that fistula in the first few days or weeks following a bowel resection. But fistulas can also occur as a result of inflammatory conditions involving the bowel wall. Most likely it's gonna be either from diverticulitis or from radiation damage, occasionally from Crohn's disease. So think what happens with every one of those. Crohn's is a transmural inflammatory process, meaning all layers of the bowel wall are infected, including the outer layer, the serosal layer. Diverticulitis, many times you get microperforations and you can get a very sticky exudate on the outer surface of the bowel. Radiation damage to the bowel causes transmural inflammation. Anytime you have transmural inflammation, you produce a sticky exudate on the outside of the bowel. And then that bowel that's so sticky is likely to become adherent to other loops of bowel. You can get internal fistulas loop to loop but that very sticky loop of bowel might also stick to the bladder, might stick to the abdominal wall, might stick to the vagina, causing either um, colovesical, colocutaneous, or colovaginal fistulas. So most commonly it's surgery, complicated, complicated by impaired healing. Occasionally it's a transmural inflammatory condition involving the bowel. Now, how are fistulas classified? Well, they're named for the point of origin and the point of termination. So there's always two components to the name, like enterocutaneous. Well, that means from the bowels, usually the small bowel, to the skin. Colovesical, from the colon to the bladder. Vesicovaginal, from the bladder to the vagina. So the first part of the name is gonna tell you where the drainage is coming from and the second part tells you where the drainage is ending or where it's empty. So enterocutaneous, you've got small bowel drainage emptying at skin level. Colovesical, you've got stool and gas emptying through the bladder. And vesicovaginal, you've got urine draining through the vagina and then out. A very important um, classification relates to volume. So most of the time they will classify fistulas as either high output or low output. High output, the line in the sand is more than 500 milliliters of output in 24 hours. Low volume output, less than 500 milliliters output in 24 hours. Well, why does that matter? What is the significance? So the significance is that when you have low volume output, it indicates a smaller opening in the bowel wall, a smaller defect. Small defects are much 
more likely to close on their own than large defects. So if at baseline, your patient has 1,500 milliliters of output per day, that suggests a pretty large opening that's unlikely to close spontaneously. But if at baseline your patient has, say, 350 or 400 milliliters out a day, it suggests a much smaller opening and much greater likelihood for spontaneous closure. You'll also sometimes hear surgeons classify fistulas as simple versus complex. If it's a simple fistula, you've got a direct track to the skin, there's no abscess, there's no organ involvement. So they're much easier to manage, more likely to close. If it's a complex fistula, it means that there's either abscess formation, some organ involvement, um, or the wound empties into, or the fistula empties into the wound bed. So those are considered complex, and a lot of them are complex. Now let's talk about diagnosis and workup. Nurses are usually the first ones to identify a potential fistula because we're the ones that do routine dressing changes. So if I'm taking care of a patient who's five days post-op, two days ago they sustained incisional dehiscence. Today I take out the dressing that's saturated with greenish-brown fluid. I know that is absolutely not normal and that it's almost definitely coming from the small bowel. So I'm gonna notify the physician, the surgeon, who never wants to think that his surgeon or her, that his patient or her patient has developed a fistula. And you can understand that because it's such a devastating complication. It usually has nothing to do with surgical technique. It's just that it's such an uphill battle to get a fistula to close that if I was a surgeon, I would not want to believe my patient had a fistula. So usually I'm like, well, maybe it's not bowel fluid, maybe it's peritoneal fluid, blah, blah, blah. But when I come and evaluate the patient, I'm like, yes, it looks like it's a fistula. Let's proceed with workup. So what's the workup going to involve? Well, first of all, we have to know where the fistula originates and where it terminates. We already have a pretty clear idea of where it terminates. We probably have a reasonably good idea of where it originates if the patient is post-op. But they'll almost always do an MRI to verify that yes, we have a small leak at the anastomotic site and it's terminating in the wound bed. Very occasionally it's hard to demonstrate the leak, so they might go retrograde. They might feed a little catheter into the fistula at the level of the abdominal wall or the wound and inject radiopaque contrast so that we can see where it goes. But almost always it's MRI. As part of the workup, they will rule out any abscess, any infectious complications, because if there is abscess, it needs to be drained. A lot of times you can tell that because when you're managing the wound and the fistula, you find a combination of enteric drainage and purulent drainage that tells you that there's an abscess involved with this fistula tract. And you would notify the physician Typically, they would do another CT or MRI, and then they might very well place a drain. They might do CT-guided drain placement. Critical to rule out distal obstruction, because you think what a fistula represents, essentially, is a detour. You've created an additional pathway for fecal drainage. 
So now it could go down the main highway or it could follow this side road and end up in the wound bed. Our goal is going to be to close that detour, close that side road. We want everything going down the main highway. Critical to make sure that the main highway is open all the way from the fistula site to the rectum and anus or to an ostomy if they have an ostomy. The MRI will usually show that and that's another thing that they're looking for is the distal bowel patent. And then finally, they're going to assess the patient in terms of fluid and electrolyte status and nutritional status because they're losing abnormal volumes of fluid, electrolytes, and nutrients from this fistula. And we're going to have to provide nutritional support and fluid and electrolyte replacement. Now think if you're the patient. First of all, you're like, what is happening? Where? What is this? Where is it coming from? Why do I have all this fluid in my wound? So we've got to explain to you that where we put your bowel back together, there's one little area that did not heal normally. So we have a leak from the bowel into the wound, a leak from the bowel to the skin. And they're like, that's coming from my bowel? That's coming from my intestine? Yes. Well, what are you going to do? How are you going to get this to close? So most of the time, conservative therapy, medical management is first-line therapy. Now, surgical closure will be indicated if spontaneous closure fails. And look at the statistics, they're not encouraging. Spontaneous closure occurs in only about 30%. If it's going to close spontaneously, it will do so within four to six weeks. That means 70% of patients are going to require surgical intervention to get their fistulas to close. So many times a patient will ask, am I going back to surgery? And we say, not right now. You might have to go back to surgery later, but we're gonna do some other things first. Well, you know what? If I'm gonna have to have surgery, I'd rather have it now. Let's just get it over with. I'm in here, let's just do it. And then we would have to say, you're not going to get good outcomes if we take you back to surgery right now. We're going to wait for several months. If it does not close within that time frame, then yes, you will probably have to go back to surgery. Well, what's the advantage of waiting? Why do I have to wait three months, four months, if we already know that I'm likely to need surgery to get this thing to close? You're probably wondering the same thing. If 70% of patients eventually require surgical intervention, why don't we just move ahead? And there's three reasons. The first two apply to all patients, and the third one applies to those with low volume output fistulas. So point number one that you wanna be able to explain to your patient is that you just had surgery five days ago and you have not healed normally. So we need to give your body time to recover from the last surgery. We need to correct everything that might be interfering with healing. We need to be sure you're exactly where you need to be from a nutritional standpoint. 
We need to make sure that you're not smoking. We need to be sure that all of your other medical conditions have been managed effectively. We wanna make sure that your sugar levels are where they need to be. We wanna put you in the very best position possible to heal when we take you back to surgery. And right now, your body's still trying to recover from the surgery we did five days ago. It's not ready. And remember, we told you that it usually takes four to six weeks at least to recover from a major surgical procedure. So number one, we have to let you recover from the last surgery. We have to address anything that might interfere with healing before we take you back. There's another equally important and sometimes even more important reason that we have to wait. And that is that anytime we do abdominal surgery, you get scar tissue forming in the abdomen. Now, some of you have actually had the opportunity to observe surgery. Some of you might have an OR background. So you know that the first time someone has an abdominal procedure, it's very easy to identify all of the structures you do the incision, you lift the greater omentum, put it out on the surgical field. You're able to lift the bowel. You can run the bowel. You can determine exactly where you need to go in the abdominal cavity and what you need to do. Those of you who have observed a lot of surgical procedures also know that when you have a patient who's had prior procedures, there's a lot of scar tissue within the abdominal cavity and it totally alters your ability to move around in the abdominal cavity because everything's stuck together. Some surgeons use the term frozen abdomen to mean everything's just locked together in a solid mass. So some analogies that you can use for patients is think about what happens if you get a bag of ice for a party. And when you first get the bag of ice, all of those little um, cubes move independently and it's very easy to take a cup or a scoop and put ice in this cup and this cup and this cup. But after about 30 minutes to an hour, as the ice starts to melt, it just becomes a mass of ice. And the only way to create individual cubes is with an ice pick. Or you could use the analogy of pasta. So when you first cook pasta, all the strands move independently. But as the pasta cools and congeals, all those strands are stuck to each other. So you want to think of the loops of bowel as like those pasta strands that are now all in one mass stuck together very tightly. If we go into the abdomen at that point, the issue is how are you going to get through all of that scar tissue? How are you going to get to that pasta strand that you need to get to? because it's almost impossible to separate those loops of bowel without causing trauma. Just like you can't separate those little strands of pasta and you can't separate those individual pieces of ice. At first, the loops of bowel are stuck together like this, literally glued together. If you try to cut through the scar tissue, you create additional holes in the bowel wall. But over about three to six months, that scar tissue softens and you acquire the abilities to start to separate the loops of bowel and cut through, separate and cut through, separate and cut through. So if we wait, the 
ability to do what you need to do in the abdomen improves dramatically. Now, if you read surgical reports, you'll read that the surgeon says extensive lysis of adhesions requiring six hours. What does that mean? It means they had to meticulously separate and cut through, separate and cut through, separate and cut through, and feel their way into the abdominal cavity before they could reach the area of the bowel with the leak, with the fistula. So is it important to wait three to six months until that scar tissue softens? It's critical. Now the third thing, and this is relevant only to patients with low volume output fistulas, so I would not say this to someone who had a high output fistula, but if you have a relatively small hole and a low volume output fistula, if we do everything right, many times that fistula will close on its own because it's a small defect. So if we provide adequate nutritional support, we limit the amount of fluid going through the tract, chances are we can get it to close. So almost all of the fistulas that close on their own fall into the category of low volume output fistulas. So you want to make sure you understand why surgical intervention is delayed. You'll get many questions from your patients. So we're going to start out with conservative therapy. There are some known predictors of failure. So sometimes we can start out at the beginning and we're almost positive that this patient is going to require surgical intervention, that this fistula will not close on its own. So we know that fistulas are not likely to close on their own or will not close on their own if there's stomatization. What does that mean? It means the fistula forms its own stoma. So I want you to look at the diagram on top. And what you see in the diagram on top is that the anterior wall of the bowel has become adherent to the abdominal wall. So now you've got attachment between the bowel and the skin, and then the mucosa turns back on itself. And many times when you look in the base of the wound, like you see in the two on bottom, you see what look like little stomas, and they are stomas. So basically the body has done on its own exactly what a surgeon does when he or she creates a stoma. Because what do they do? They attach the bowel wall to the abdominal wall. They turn the mucosa back on itself and you have a stoma. What has the body done? It self-attached the bowel wall to the abdominal wall, turned back on itself to create a stoma. So once you see stomatization, you know that surgical intervention is the only way you'll ever get that fistula to close. Now, the patient might not be a candidate for surgical intervention, which means that this is a very long-term fistula. Another indicator that surgical intervention is probably going to be required in a few months is high volume output, which denotes a large fistula tract. We already talked about that. Also, if the patient's had radiation to that area or if there's malignancy in the area, very unlikely that we will see any closure of the fistula. Those patients almost always require surgery. 
So let's talk about the factors that you need to include when you're assessing the patient with a fistula. First of all, the volume of output through the fistula is a critical assessment factor. It helps you differentiate low volume fistulas from high volume fistulas. But it's not enough just to know how much is coming through the fistula. You also need to know how much is going through the distal bowel. So you want to know how much is coming out of the fistula, how many bowel movements did they have rectally, or how much stool is going into the ostomy pouch. So I recently had a patient, he had a low volume output fistula. It was in the ascending colon. And we were doing everything we could to try to get this fistula to close on its own so he wouldn't have to go back to surgery. So the first two weeks, there was nothing in his colostomy pouch. But then the third week I come in and two things have happened. There's been a marked reduction in output through the fistula and he's got a marked increase in stool into the colostomy pouch. And he said, you know, I have never seen anybody get that excited about pooping a bag, but I'm glad I made your day. I'm like, you made my day. Okay, so look at volume of output through the fistula. Remember, that's the detour. Look at evidence of output through the main highway, okay? Down to the rectum and anus, down to the stomach. Be very alert to any indicators of foreign body. If you see sutures in the uh, fistula tract, that suture probably needs to be removed because it's gonna interfere with closure. And most importantly, is there stomatization? So you track output, you compare fistula output, distal bowel output, and you watch for stoma formation. You hope you don't see it. Let's talk about the elements of conservative management. So goal number one, when you're managing a fistula, you want to minimize output through the fistula tract. Why? Because some, it will promote closure of a low volume output fistula. So if I have a little hole, it's not very big, I'm trying to get it to granulate and to close, do I want a lot of fluid going through the hole? No, because it keeps it open. So if I minimize output through the hole, I increase the chances for spontaneous closure. Well, what if I have a high volume output fistula? Then I know it's very unlikely to close. Do I still need to minimize output through the fistula tract? Yes, you need to minimize output to the extent possible because it facilitates management, makes it much easier to keep a pouch on makes it easier to maintain fluid electrolyte balance, makes it easier to maintain positive nitrogen balance from a nutritional support perspective. So across the board, we try to minimize output through the fistula tract. How do we do that? Well, first of all, we talk to patients about limiting oral or enteral intake. So if I want less fluid going out the fistula, out the fistula tract, I have to take less in. Most of the time, we take away solid food. We limit liquid intake to just a few glasses a day. We encourage them to sip along on liquids and to make those liquids high protein, but no solids. We certainly don't want chunky things going through this fistula tract. So low volume liquid intake, 
Most of the time you will see orders for octreotide, also known as sandostatin. What does octreotide do? You can add it to the TPN, you can give it um, sub-Q. And remember it's a naturally occurring GI hormone that reduces the amount of intestinal fluid produced by glands throughout the GI tract. So you go back to your AMP, you think, oh yeah, you make a lot, you make 1,500 milliliters of saliva a day, you make 2,500 milliliters of gastric juice, you make 3,000 milliliters of small bowel fluid. That's a lot of fluid. So if we're trying to minimize output through the fistula tract, not only do I need to reduce oral intake, but I need to reduce the amount of fluid produced by the gut itself. And that's the intent of octreotide. So many times they'll do like a one-week or two-week trial of octreotide to see what impact does it have on fistula output. So if at baseline they had 600 milliliters a day, but after we started octreotide it dropped to 200, Wow, that's wonderful, that's a major reduction, and now they fall into the category of a low volume output fistula with improved potential for healing. So goal number one, minimize output through the fistula tract, reduce oral intake, and do a trial of octreotide. Goal number two, we want healing to progress. First of all, we want you to heal normally from your first surgical procedure, and secondly, we want you to be able to close the fistula tract if possible. So that means you have to have adequate nutritional support. And since you're losing a lot of nutrients through the fistula tract, that almost always means TPN. Now, the third goal is to partially or totally collapse the fistula tract. So in some centers, they'll use negative pressure wound therapy to try to pull the sides of that little defect together, hold it in the collapsed state until granulation tissue can form and seal the defect. Now what you have to know is that we have very limited data about the impact of negative pressure wound therapy on fistula healing. We do not have any randomized controlled trials that I know about. Pretty much what we have are anecdotal reports, uh, case series at best. So theoretically, it makes sense. We can't prove it. And if we decide to use negative pressure, there are specific precautions we should always, always use. So go to the second point. So we have limited data to support the use of negative pressure to promote fistula closure. However, we have wonderful data about the impact of negative pressure wound therapy on wound closure in general on granulation tissue formation. Almost always, this fistula is dumping into an open wound bed. So does it make sense to use negative pressure to promote wound healing? and at the same time to manage the fistula output? Yes, so we know we can use negative pressure to promote wound healing. We know we can use negative pressure to manage fistula output. There's limited anecdotal data that we might be able to use negative pressure to help collapse the fistula tract. 
So let's go to, if you use negative pressure, what are the precautions that you should incorporate? Because there are surgeons who do not want to use negative pressure because they believe they have seen fistulas develop as a result of negative pressure. And actually, there are reports in the literature of fistulas developing in the presence of negative pressure. Almost always, when you look back at how negative pressure was implemented, it was implemented incorrectly and you got tissue trauma as a result. So if you are going to use negative pressure to promote wound healing, to manage fistula output, and to hopefully help to collapse the fistula tract, you want to put protective measures in place to make absolutely sure that you don't cause any additional tissue damage, that you don't create another fistula. So what are the things you should be doing? First of all, you should put a contact layer down into the wound bed to protect the wound bed from the foam and to keep the tissue from growing into the foam. Because think about it, if you have loops of bowel very close to the surface and you put that black foam or gray foam directly onto the wound surface, those loops of bowel are gonna become adherent to the foam and when you remove the foam, you could potentially unroof the bowel and cause a fistula. So you should routinely use a contact layer, Adaptic, Adaptic Touch, Mepitel, Mepitel 1, or Versatel. Or you could use white foam, or you could use both. So what's the difference between white foam and black foam or gray foam? As we discussed in a previous class, the white foam is much less porous, it's much denser, and it's moist. So it does not adhere to the wound bed like white foam or gray foam. So you could use either white foam or a contact layer or both. Many clinicians use both until they have a good bed of granulation tissue. They'll put down their contact layer, then they'll put white foam, then they'll put black foam. You'd much rather be ultra safe than very, very sorry. No foam in the fistula tract, even though we typically teach nurses to put foam in tunneled or undermined areas. Here we want this tract to collapse, so we do not want any foam in the fistula tract. What about pressure settings? Well, typically we begin at minus 150. If that completely collapses the fistula tract, we no longer see enteric drainage running through the tubing, then stay at 150. If you're still seeing some enteric drainage go through the tubing, you can increase to 175 or to a max of minus 200. You want to monitor constantly to see, are you getting the desired results? Is this negative pressure helping to collapse the fistula tract? And you will know because you'll be able to track volume of output, right? So if there is a significant reduction in the volume of enteric output, let's say at baseline, you had 900 milliliters out a day, after you initiated negative pressure, it dropped to 300 to 400 a day. That's a significant reduction in the volume of output, which means a significant reduction in the size of the opening. So is negative pressure helping to pull the edges together? Yes. Does it make sense to continue it? Yes. 
What if you went to, from 600 to 50? That would be amazing. But if you only went from 1,800 to 1,600 a day, any decision to continue negative pressure would be based on progress in wound healing and the ability to control the exudate, okay? So if you see significant improvement, significant reduction in output with negative pressure, then it makes sense to continue that negative pressure for three to four weeks on continuous. If, as we said, there's very limited response, then you're gonna reevaluate. And if you decide to continue negative pressure, you're doing so because you're, you still need to promote wound healing and because it facilitates exudate management. Now, there are situations in which you want to, what we say, back the wound. You want to continue negative pressure to the wound, but you need to isolate the fistula because the fistula output is interfering with negative pressure. So when might you try to isolate the fistula? The indications are listed at top. It's when you still need negative pressure for wound healing. The fistula is stomatized and protruding, so there's the possibility that we can get a good seal around the fistula. And the output is thick enough to interfere with back function. So how would you know that? Because you would get, be getting constant alarms that the system is blocked. So you get a blockage alarm. You go in, Okay, everything's sealed down. What's causing the blockage? The thick drainage is occluding the track pad. Once the sensors are occluded and not working, you get a blockage alarm. So let's say the first time that happens, you cut away the track pad, you put another track pad on. It happens again in an hour. Then you know that the drainage at this point is too thick to go through the track pad you either have to discontinue negative pressure and go to pouching, or you have to back the wound and pouch the fistula. So here's the guidelines for backing the wound and pouching the fistula, and we'll demonstrate this when you come on site for Bridge Week. There are commercial devices you could use, they're called crowns, um, that you can get from KCI, or you can uh, there's a do-it-yourself version using barrier rings. So I'm going to walk you through the do-it-yourself version and then we'll demonstrate it. So you're going to start out, you irrigate the wound, all of that kind of stuff. Then you're going to put down your contact layer dressing and you're going to cut out the contact layer dressing to fit around the fistula. Okay, so now you have your contact layer down, adaptive touch, mappy tail, mappy tail one, whatever. Then you're going to take a barrier ring and you're going to fit it around the base of the stomatized fistula over the contact layer. It's going to form the basis of an isolating ring around the stoma. Then you're going to take your foam, you're going to cut out the foam to avoid the fistula, put your foam down. Then you're going to take a second barrier ring you're gonna put it around the fistula, you're gonna secure it to the first ring. So by putting these two rings and in between you have the foam, so here's ring one, here's the foam, here's ring two. Now what I do is I literally create a barrier by sticking barrier ring one to barrier ring two, I isolate the enteric output from the foam. 
I know it doesn't make sense when we just talk through it. We will show you this at Bridge Week and then it will make sense to you. If you have to do it before Bridge Week, try to follow these instructions and you'll start to see what we're talking about. Okay. Once you've got barrier ring one adhered to barrier ring two, then you put your drape down all the way across. You find a place that you wanna do your track pad, cut the hole, put your track pad on, activate negative pressure. Once everything sucks down and you know you have a really good seal, then you can cut away the drape over the fistula and stick on your pouch. And the goal is, for the enteric drainage to go into the pouch and for the wound fluid to go through the vac tubing to the canister. Don't worry if it makes no sense, we'll show you. I just want you to know it was an option. Okay, so we talked a little bit about surgical closure. We said that 70% of patients with fistulas will require surgical intervention to get their fistula to close. So you know surgery is gonna be required if you're two months into fistula management and it has not closed. You know surgery will be required if the fistula stomatizes. We've already talked about the fact that surgical intervention will be delayed for three to six months to allow for softening of the adhesions and to improve the likelihood of positive outcomes. So what happens in the meantime? What happens during those three to six months that we're waiting for the adhesions to soften, that we're waiting for the patient to be taken back to surgery. Then it's up to us to come up with an effective management plan, something that will contain drainage, contain odor, optimize patient mobility, and hopefully be cost effective. So we're gonna talk about strategies we can use. Definitely the patient will need to continue nutritional support so they'll still be on TPN. We do typically liberalize their diet a little bit in that we now allow them to have food and fluids for pleasure. So can they now eat small amounts of solid foods? Yes, because we know they're gonna require surgery, so we're going to liberalize their dietary intake. But do we want them eating large volumes? No, because it makes the fistula so difficult for them to manage. So small amounts know all you can eat. We've already said when surgery is indicated, we've said that you're going to delay it for three to six months and what they're going to do when they go in to do surgical correction, they're going to meticulously dissect through all that scar tissue. They're going to get to the area of bowel where you have the fistula. They're going to take out that section of bowel. They're going to do an end-to-end -end anastomosis, good bowel to good bowel and then we're gonna hope and pray that it heals normally. Now let's talk about our options for containing um, the fistula drainage and odor. Pouching is the most commonly used strategy. You can use standard ostomy pouches if it's a very small wound, but most of the time you end up needing a wound pouch, a fistula pouch. So advantages of those systems they're odor-proof, so they're gonna contain the odor, they're gonna contain the drainage, they're gonna protect the skin. Typically, we prefer wound managers to regular ostomy pouches because as you see on this slide, wound managers almost always have access caps, so that allows us to open the cap, assess the wound, 
allows us to do additional wound care if necessary. It keeps people from having to take off the pouch just to assess the wound. So access caps are beneficial and also spouts because these are usually high output. So if you can put them in a pouch with a spout that can be connected to bedside drainage, that's a plus for the patient and for the nursing staff. Now there are some specific pouching modifications that you want to implement to improve the likelihood that you will get a good seal. And the first is that you want to size the opening in the pouch to clear the wound by at least one quarter to one half inch. Very different than ostomy pouching where you want it to fit closely around the stoma. So now you want to clear the wound edge by one quarter to one half inch. That helps prevent undermining, tunneling of the drainage. And you want to use a very flat layer of paste to protect the exposed skin. You don't want a thick bead of paste all the way around the wound edge because drainage tends to tunnel under. So you're always trying to create a ramp, not a retaining wall. So a flat layer of paste to protect the skin, not a thick layer. So let's just walk through the pouching procedure. You're all gonna do this many times. You're gonna clean the skin with warm water. You're gonna pat it dry. You're gonna treat any damaged skin with that crusting technique that we've talked about before. So you're gonna sprinkle ostomy powder onto any damaged areas, and then you're going to blot or spray with a liquid skin barrier. So skin prep, no sting, sure prep, Cavalon, skin gel, whatever you have. Then you're gonna make a pattern of the wound. So take a piece of clear plastic and a Sharpie, trace the dimensions of the wound, cut outside your tracing so that you'll have at least one quarter to one half inch clearance. Then you're going to use paste to fill any defects or dimples so that you have a flat pouching surface. You've gotta come up with some way to manage the fistula output while you're trying to get this pouch on. So sometimes we use wall suction connected to a yonker. A lot of times we use stacks of gauze. Some people use tampons. So you're gonna say, take your gauze, hold it here, clean your skin. Take another gauze, clean this skin. Take another gauze, clean the bottom. Take another gauze, hold it over while I treat this little area of skin damage. Another one while I treat this little area of skin damage. Okay, now I've got my skin clean, dry, treated. So now I get my pouch, my pouch is already cut out and ready to go. I want to move my gauze and put my pouch down very quickly. And then I can go inside the pouch, assuming that I have an access cap, I can go inside the pouch and add my paste a little bit at a time, all the way around the opening. The alternative is to put the paste down before you put the pouch down. It's equally valid approach. It's just very hard to do because it's pouring the whole time. So if you can go in and get the pouch down, and hold your gauze while you get a little paste right at the bottom. Do that, this area, this area, then the drainage can continue to drain into the pouch while you apply the paste to the rest of the wound edge. And you know to use a wet finger to spread your paste. Now here's a major concern of many nurses 
and many staff members, and sometimes the patient will ask this. They'll be like, well, if you put that pouch on, that stuff's just running right over my wound into that big old bag. That can't be good for my wound. How is my wound going to heal? Here's what you need to know. Wounds will continue to heal. Bowel output has very little impact on the repair process, which I know is counterintuitive, but this is why. Remember that most fistulas originate in the small bowel, so we're gonna focus primarily on small bowel drainage. You know that the enzymes in small bowel fluid can rapidly digest intact skin. But remember that enzymes are targeted. They target specific types of tissue. It turns out that the enzymes in small bowel fluid, while they rapidly digest intact skin, have no impact on type 3 collagen, which is the type in the wound bed. So the wound continues to granulate. So people look at you and are like, are you sure? Yes, we're sure. And also remember that bacterial counts are very low in the small bowel because bacteria are killed in the stomach and then in the small bowel, transit time is so fast that there's very little time for bacterial proliferation. So you will see that wounds will continue to granulate. Now, once the wound is granulated to the surface and it starts to epithelialize, then you do have to protect the epithelializing wound because those enzymes will attack the epithelium, but they will not attack granulation tissue. Theory, occasionally you'll have a colonic fistula, not very often. Colonic um, output has no enzymes or just minimal residual enzymes, so that's not an issue. Colonic fistulas are associated with higher bacterial counts, but if the fistula is draining into an open wound, open wounds are usually very resistant, so you just monitor. There's a couple of procedures I'm gonna go through very briefly because these are procedures that we're going to demonstrate in more detail when you're here for Bridge Week. There is a procedure known as a closed suction procedure. It can be very effective in managing fistula output for patients who are bed-bound or chair-bound. But they are suction dependent, so it's not a good option for people who are roaming the halls, going down to therapy, checking out the gift shop. So it works well if you have an open wound with large amounts of drainage and your patient's bed bound or chair bound. And the advantage is it's very simple. So the first thing you're gonna do, you're gonna look at the skin around the wound and determine what level of protection is needed. Can I just spray the skin with a liquid skin barrier? Do I need to do a bead of paste? Then, you are going to protect the wound bed because we're going to use suction catheters to manage fistula output. And you never ever want a suction catheter in direct contact with the wound bed because it'll suck the wound tissue into the suction catheter and cause trauma. So you're gonna line the wound bed with several layers of damp gauze or some type of contact layer dressing. Then you're gonna position your suction catheter just below the fistula because you want it to pick up fistula drainage. Now, occasionally I've had patients who had wounds from here to here, here to here, and maybe the fistula is up here. And in that case, I might end up putting a suction catheter along the right gutter and along the left gutter to manage the drainage no matter where it comes.
A lot of you have experience with taking a fairly large bore catheter and adding additional holes, just cutting holes along the sides of, of the catheter, you can do that. Once you place the catheter, you're going to put layers of damp gauze on top to stabilize the catheters. And then you're going to cover the entire wound with transparent adhesive dressing. So either Opsite or Tegaderm or back drape. You can cut it in strips or you can put it on as one sheet if you have someone to help you. So now you have sealed the wound with your transparent adhesive dressing. You connect your suction catheters to wall suction, typically on low to medium intermittent or low to medium constant if you have really high volume output. So this whole procedure typically takes 15 to 30 minutes, much faster than some of the very involved pouching procedures or some of the very involved back change procedures. So think about using the closed suction procedure if you have high volume drainage in a patient who's bed bound or chair bound. The trough procedure, I am gonna go over it. You can read about it in the book. It probably will not make much sense to you until you come on site and we do it. This was actually developed by um, a wound anostomy nurse as an alternative to pouching in situations where pouching is ineffective. It's intended only for fistulas located in open wounds because you're literally going to seal the wound with back drape, tegaderm, or opsite. And at the bottom, you're going to attach a pouch. So you're literally going to turn the wound into a trough. So it's only for fistulas located in open wounds. It has the advantage of being easy to use for large wounds or for irregular surfaces. Also, in some situations where there's no room for a pouch, so you know, you look at the patients you get. So they have this midline wound. Over here, they have a leaking J-tube. Here they have an ileostomy that's maybe one inch from the wound edge if we're lucky. Over here they have a couple of surgical drains. Then if they develop wound dehiscence and a fistula, there's no place to put a pouch. But could you seal that wound with back drape or with tegaderm or opsite and then cut a hole in the bottom and stick a pouch on? Yes, you could. So sometimes when there's not enough surface to pouch, you can do the trough procedure. If you can't keep one of those big pouches on, you can try the trough procedure. And of course, you can always add suction that gives you improved management of the drainage, helps to keep the drainage out of the pouch so that you have lower risk of leakage. So I'm gonna walk you through it, but again, don't get concerned if this makes no sense. That's why we have Bridge Week. So the way Chris, he's the guy that came up with this, the way he started out was he protected all the wound, all the skin around the wound with overlapping barrier strips because his theory was that when we put a big pouch on an abdominal, around an abdominal wound in fistula, the problem is that we have a semi-moldable large piece of barrier attached to a surface that changes constantly. Because your abdominal surface changes when you breathe, cough, laugh, sneeze, turn, get out of bed, get back in bed. So it's like, if you do overlapping barrier strips, now you have built-in flexibility. So he did overlapping barrier strips, like hydrocolloid strips. 
But you know what? We've learned a lot since he came out with this procedure. We know that most of the time, if you are going to use back drape or tegaderm or opsite to seal the wound, all you need to protect the peri-wound skin is just your liquid barrier spray or maybe a bead of paste. So yes, you can use overlapping strips of hydrocolloid, but you could also just use a bead of paste or paste strips. And sometimes you can just spray the wound edges with liquid barrier spray. This is the important thing. That bottom piece of drape, you need a hole in that drape with a pouch on top. The easiest way to do it is to go on and attach the pouch to the drape and then cut a big hole that's wider than the wound at the base. Put that down and then cover the rest of the wound with overlapping strips of opsite tegaderm or back drape. So then you've sealed the wound with the drape. The only hole in the system is at the bottom where you have a big hole in the back drape and on top of that big hole is sitting a pouch. And we hope the drainage will go down and into the pouch, and usually it does. People ask, how often do I have to change this? Usually once or twice a week. If it will stay on a week, that is great. So this is a trough procedure that's done, so you can see all the skin's protected, but you might just use your liquid barrier spray. We left the green tabs on so that you could see the entire wound is covered with opsite. And at the bottom, we have a big hole in the opsite and a pouch attached. There is a procedure called bridging procedure that you might use if you have a very extensive wound with two different areas. One area that needs to be pouched and another area that just needs moist wound healing. So this is a very good example, the patient on the screen right now, um, because she had a wound that started at the right mid-axillary line, ran all the way over to the left mid-axillary line. She had a biliary fistula on the right side, draining about 600 milliliters a day and keeping her constantly wet. So in this slide, her head is this way, her feet are that way, and you're looking at the right mid-axillary area. So what the patient and the nurses wanted to know was could we come up with some way of pouching this area and just put a dressing on the rest? So we're looking at this wound, we're thinking, well, you know what, we have a pouching surface on three sides. If we could use something to fill the wound on that fourth side and create a pouching surface, maybe we could make this work. So we picked an area to build our bridge. And you can see where it is, it's just above the fistula. And in this procedure, what we did was we did um, stacks of hydrocolloid barrier strips. So we put strip one, strip two on top, strip three, strip four, strip five, until we got all the way up to the surface of the skin, till we had filled the wound at that level. Now today, I probably wouldn't take the time to do all of these barrier strips. Instead, I would probably use white foam or black foam, a combination. So I might cut a wedge of white foam to fit the wound where I want to build the bridge. And then I might put a wedge of black foam on top and then secure it either with a big strip of hydrocolloid or with back drape. 
Bottom line is you could use either vac foam or layered hydrocolloid wedges to essentially create a bridge and fill the wound. So you can see that here, once we got to skin level, we did a couple of additional layers so that we were creating a very slight pressure dressing effect. And then we secured it with that cover strip of hydrocolloid that you see on bottom. But think how much easier it would be for you if you used wedges of foam. So one wedge of white foam and then black foam and then your hydrocolloid strip. Once you get that hydrocolloid strip down, now you have a pouching surface that goes all the way around the wound. And you could either pouch it, or in this case, we troughed it. And then you could just dress the rest of the wound. More commonly, you'll use this when you have a wound that is very extensive top to bottom. So let's say you have a wound that extends from the xiphoid to the symphysis. The top two thirds of the wound just need moist wound healing, just need dressings, but the bottom third has a fistula and needs a pouch or a trough. So could I dress the top part of the wound, use back foam or hydrocolloid strips to create a barrier right here and then pouch the bottom? Yes, you can. So the point I want you to go away with is you can section the wound if you need to. If you have two areas with different therapeutic needs, you can use all the things in your toolbox to manage the fistula with a pouch or a trough, manage the rest of the wound with moist wound healing, and separate the two with a bridge. We'll go over this in additional detail at Bridge Week. Okay, just a couple of other things we need to talk about. We need to talk about unique fistulas. So rectovaginal fistulas, introvaginal or vesicovaginal fistulas, and then unpouchable fistulas. So rectovaginal fistulas, it's pretty clear you've got an opening between the rectum and the vaginal vault. To get that to close, almost always they'll do a temporary colostomy so that you divert the stool long enough for that opening to close. Sometimes surgery is not an option. Sometimes patient doesn't want surgery. So then how can we help that patient manage? Well, think about the fact that normally stool from the left side of the colon, the rectum, is formed. As long as we maintain soft formed stool, it's not going to track through that little bitty hole. And the patient won't be straining to eliminate the stool, so she's not going to enlarge the hole. So the whole focus is on dietary fiber and adequate fluid to maintain soft form stool that doesn't track through the hole. So I always tell patients, this is what you're aiming for. You don't want mush, mush will track. You don't want liquid, liquid will track. You don't want pellets, pellets will track. You want soft logs. That's what you're aiming for. And that's what you're doing with fiber and fluid. What about odor? So you can prevent stool from tracking through, but what about bacteria? And bacteria can cause odor. So a lot of times, if you're advanced practice, you can write a prescription for an antimicrobial vaginal gel. If you're not advanced practice, you can work with her prescribing physician or nurse practitioner. Introvaginal, vesicovaginal, very different. Now you've got <coughs> liquid stool or urine tracking into the vagina and out. 
they're wet all the time, they feel dirty all the time, and if there's any bowel involvement, their skin is a mess. Now, staff can't figure out what to do because it's a very difficult situation, so typically they put them in absorbent products, diapers or briefs, <clears throat> that holds the drainage against the skin, and now their skin's even worse. But what you can do, think about what we do for patients who are incontinent and who have high volume liquid stools. We use a bowel management system. And how does that system work? Well, it's a decent sized catheter surrounded by a balloon. So you put that into the rectum, you inflate the balloon. The inflated balloon mostly occludes the anal canal and forces the drainage to go through the catheter into a bedside bag. Could we do the same thing here? Yes. So you can use a balloon-tipped catheter. If you have a very narrow vaginal vault, you're gonna do a very gentle digital first to see how wide the vaginal vault is. A lot of these women have had pelvic cancer. They might've had pelvic radiation. So many times they have a lot of stenosis and the vault is very narrow. If so, you might just be able to use a regular urethral catheter, a Foley catheter, and inflate the balloon to 10 milliliters, and that gives you adequate retention. It holds the tube inside the vagina and occludes the opening. So when you're doing your digital, you're thinking, okay, could I use a regular Foley catheter? Could I use a Foley catheter with a 30 milliliter balloon? Should I think about using an internal bowel management system? Any of those things could be used. And then finally, what about unpouchable fistulas? They're out there. Almost all of us have encountered one. So you do everything you know to do, nothing works. Or maybe, yes, you can get something to stay on, but it only stays on for 24 hours and it takes you two hours to do it and altogether, the supplies you use every time cost $150. And now the patient's getting ready to go home, and that is not a sustainable system. So you always want to have a backup plan. And here's your backup plan. Protect the skin and use absorptive products. So one thing that we now have available is absorptive products, infant diapers, and underpads with super absorbent polymers that actively wick fluid away. And you know that infant diapers can now handle over 500 milliliters of liquid. So if you have a very difficult fistula, talk to the patient or the caregiver about backing off and trying this system. Protect the skin all the way around the fistula site with a zinc oxide product so that you've got very high level skin protection. Take an infant diaper or cut a square of a super absorbent under pad. If you have to cut, you're gonna to have to tape the edges or everything's gonna ooze out. Put that over the fistula. Now the last step is really important. If it just sits at the surface, nothing happens. You have to hold pressure against that diaper, against that square of under pad, so that you force the drainage into the diaper, into the under pad. So with adults, a lot of times we use an abdominal binder. With infants and children, a lot of times we use stretch net that we can pull up over the torso. This can be very effective and many patients will tell you if they have a very difficult situation, 
let me do this. I can manage this. I can't manage that other thing. I actually feel more secure with this than with that. The first time I did this, it was for a little girl. She was 15 months old and she was status post liver transplant. She had a fistula at the anastomosis. So you think about when you do liver transplant, you've got involvement of the common bowel duct, you've got the duodenum, you've got the pancreatic duct, everything emptying there together. So she had highly corrosive output. And we tried pouching her, we could not keep a pouch on. So we backed off and we did zinc oxide and we did a diaper and we did stretch net. And within two days, we had her skin healed and then we could keep a pouch on. But when she went home, her mom said, can I please go back to that other way? I can't do that pouch, but I can do that other thing you did and I will and I can take care of her skin. And that's what we did. So in summary, what is a fistula? It's a hole that shouldn't be there, a communication typically between the bowel and some other organ or the bowel and the skin. Nurses find fistulas. Physicians um, order the workup, which usually involves an MRI to see where it starts, where it ends, and to rule out any distal obstruction. Management, we start out with medical management, which means we implement measures to reduce the volume of output. So we limit oral intake. We use octreotide to reduce intestinal secretions. We put them on TPN for nutritional support, and we may use negative pressure wound therapy to promote wound closure and help collapse the tract. We're constantly monitoring for evidence that the fistula is not going to close on its own, indicators that it's not going to close on its own, if it turns into a stoma, if you're six to, wait, six to eight weeks into therapy with minimal improvement, or if you have persistent high volume output. 70% of patients will require surgical intervention. Surgery is going to be delayed until the patient's recovered from the initial surgery, until the adhesions have had an opportunity to soften, so usually for three to six months. And in the meantime, we're going to manage them with continued TPN, limited oral intake, and either pouching or possibly use of negative pressure or the closed suction procedure, or with absorptive products and zinc oxide. Okay, that's it for fistulas. We'll be on to perk tubes very shortly. Thank you.